Good morning. Believe it or not, today we are going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's been a blessing to be able to spend so much time there. And it's been interesting because in doing some research, I found that you know, people say, well, how could people hear Jesus? How could, how could, without a microphone, how could they hear him? Well, where the Sermon on the Mount was, there's a couple different places. Stunningly enough, the one who made the heavens and the earth made a place where winds come and go down this mountain. And so by speaking, Jesus knew, because he had made it, that his voice would be heard. His words would be carried on the wind to the people below him. So today we're going to be looking, I know it says Matthew 7, 24, 29, but we're going to go back to 21 to 29. And that can be divided into three parts. I never knew you. Build your house on the rock and the authority of Jesus. Here's the scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many great works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus was finished with these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Last week, P.D. talked about prophets coming in sheep's clothing, and they stand at the broad gates. And remember with the kids, they were over here. There was a broad gate here, and there was a really narrow gate here. And the natural inclination, even when you're a kid, is to go through the easy gate. And all the kids, a couple of them came over and looked at the narrow gate, and they were like, nope, let's go over here. And that's the natural inclination, is to go through the easy gate. It's an enticing gate. However, we are called to go through the narrow gate. In the beginning of this week's scripture, it talks about the judgment day and how we're to be ready for it. And it really is the path through the narrow gate. So how are we to prepare for this judgment? By doing the will of the Father. And some of this just seems so easy. Do the will of the Father. And yet we know from our life experiences it's not always easy at all. And what is doing the will of the Father? It's obedience. Obedience to his will is the true test of faith. And just saying the words is not obedience. Memorizing Bible verses, while certainly a good thing, is not obedience. Singing the songs, talking with the right words, again, not bad things at all. Things we should do, but they're not necessarily 
obedience to God. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 9 through 11, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So when we're truly born again, we have the Holy Spirit within us, and that spirit enables us to do the Father's will. When God's love is in our hearts, it should motivate us to obey God and serve other people. Again, in Romans, in chapter 5, Paul tells us that, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Words and works are not a substitute for obedience. So for this part of the scripture, the question as to whether God will call us genuine or counterfeit is not just whether we call ourselves followers of Jesus. I mean, that's an important question, but it almost seems like an easy question because I think all of us would say, are you a follower of Jesus? We'd say, of course. I check all the boxes. I confessed my faith. I did the sinner's prayer. I got baptized in the tank. But if I was on trial for being a Christian, what ev evidence would there be to convict me? Well, I have a Jesus fish on the back of my car, and I go to church almost every Sunday, I mean, except during NFL season if my team's playing early. I have two different versions of the Bible, so that must mean I'm a Christian. I have a praise song on my cell phone as the ringtone, for goodness sake, I must be a Christian. I think I'm in the church directory. And one of my presets on the car is a Christian station. Some of us might even be able to say, I teach Sunday school, or I'm on such and such a committee at the church. I give to the church and I give special offerings, and all of these are really good things. But the real evidence of being saved by grace is a changed life, a life that reflects a daily relationship with the Savior, of giving ourselves completely to him, a life that lives obediently to God and his word. As we talked about before, our Lord wants all of us to celebrate the victory that's already won. And it's interesting, in, in the second service when I preached a couple weeks ago, Jimmy did his communion meditation and reminded us of this truth. If we've given ourselves to Christ, the battle's won. But it's kind of interesting because we still have to fight that battle every day. In sports, there's a basic foundational position. And it's for a lot of sports. And basically, it's feet are kind of apart, your knees are bent, and you're relaxed. And for baseball, you'll see a lot of people be ready. 
They're ready to receive. They're ready to go. In tennis, same thing. The player's ready. He's ready for something to happen. It's the same stance. It's a foundation. And in basketball, often it's defense. When you're ready to find the person coming at you. It's a sturdy position. It's a foundational position. And it allows us, when we're foundationally sound in Christ, to hold firm. The next section of scripture gives us guidance on our foundation in Christ. And it's really an amazing part of the Sermon on the Mount. You have Jesus, who's our Lord and Savior, but he's a tradesman. He's a carpenter. He not only knows about foundation as the supernatural God come to earth in flesh, he knows how to build things. He's done that as his trade. And he knows the foundation needed for a strong building. And he also knows and gives us the foundation to fight our battles every day, even though the ultimate battle is already won. Everyone then who hears these words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. So the expert builder, Jesus, tells this building parable. And even more amazing is the setting for the parable. Jesus is on a mound above the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee on the edges, when it was dry, looked like rock. And people who weren't experienced often would build their house there during the dry season, or they'd pitch their tent there. But then when the rains came, they would find their homes washed away. But in the same place, if you dug down four or five feet, there was a bedrock under that sand. And if you put your home on that foundation, when the rains came and the winds came, your home stayed. And people who heard that message that day would understand exactly what Jesus was talking about. They may have had a family member who experienced building on the sand in their home, washing away. They understood the importance of having a proper foundation. And Jesus tells us the importance of having a proper foundation, and it's a lesson that's taught throughout the Bible. Is it any wonder that David wrote, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and my horn of salvation, my stronghold. And he also writes in Psalm 40, God brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. The foundation Jesus speaks of is obedience to God's word. Obedience that is an evidence of true faith. Now back to the evidence. What is evidence of the foundation upon a rock? Now it doesn't say a rock, it actually says the rock. So what is the evidence of my foundation on the rock? Well, James gives us some guidance because in James he says we're taught to build the foundation, we are taught to hear God's word from here, but hear God's word from the Bible, and we're to study it 
This is what digging for that bedrock upon which building our foundation should look like. But then the second part of the obedience is to do what we study. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So in the parable, we have two builders. Externally, these two houses probably looked exactly the same. Outside, they looked great. People probably came by and said, man, your houses look fantastic. They looked sturdy until the storm came. And then one house collapses. And the difference is the foundation. Luke describes it as one who digs deep to lay his foundation upon the rock. And let's face it, anyone can falsely profess to be a Christian, to play the part until the storm comes. And sometimes the judgment is in the trials we face, like the one who receives the seed of God's word into a shallow heart. Later on in Matthew, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And as he sowed, some of the seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, or in our parable, foundation, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Many times the trials in our life will tell us where the seeds have fallen and how firm our foundation is. But what's really important about this parable of judgment and foundation is it refers to the final judgment before God. If we do profess that we are a Christ follower, we will at some point be judged. Those who have trusted Christ and proved that they trust by obedience have nothing to fear. They have prepared good soil and they have dug a deep foundation. But the good news today is that if you haven't dug deeply enough or prepared properly your soil, you can correct the problem. We can change. And there's a manual for how to do that. And it's available to anyone here today. For us to have a firm foundation with Jesus, he demands two things. First, we must listen and we must study. We must be able to discern what's being taught. Is this truth being taught from this stage? Is the book I'm reading about the Bible or about today's society truth as relates to the truth? So first, what we must do is listen. But second, we're commanded to do. Knowledge, doctrine, and truth are only relevant if it's transferred into action. Remember that foundational stance I took a, a couple minutes ago? You don't really see many great tennis players take that stance and then just stay there through the match. Or you don't see many baseball players get ready to receive something and not move. 
What that foundation is preparing us for is action. And when we are ready, when we are firm in our foundation, it prepares us to act. So knowledge must become action. Theory must become practice. And theology, whether from this stage or this book, must become our life. I mean, there wouldn't be much point of going to a doctor if we went and we listened to everything and then didn't do what he said. Or going to any kind of expert, really. Having a plumber come over and say, you really need to replace that pipe. And you say, well, thank you. Goodbye. There's no point in doing it if we are not going to act on the information we receive. And yet how many times have I sat in a pew or maybe somebody else with far more biblical knowledge than me and didn't put anything into practice from what we heard? To truly be a follower of Christ, we are to hear and do. James also said, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In the same way, James talks about Abraham and the story of his faith being fulfilled only when he did the action of offering up his son for a sacrifice. Faith was active along with his works, and it was completed by his works. The body apart from the spirit is dead, and faith apart from works is dead. There was a 19th century celebrity daredevil named Cliff Claverly, and in 1892, he pushed a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on a rope. And when he got to the other side, the people were amazed, and they clapped, and they shouted. And he said, do you think I can do it again? And they responded, yes, we think you can do it again. And he think, do you think I could do it again if somebody was in here? And they said, yes. And then he said, who will get in with me? Genuine faith and belief is getting in the wheelbarrow. We can't just stay on the sidelines and say, I believe. And that doesn't mean we have to be perfect. God knows our imperfections and sent his only son to cover those imperfections so that we might have an intimate relationship with him. But those who profess and don't obey, who aren't doers, will hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Depart from me. But how do we test our profession of faith? Is it by popularity? I don't think so. Because if you remember, the, the broad gate was really popular. So it's not by popularity. Through the narrow gate, we must go. And that narrow gate leads us to complete obedience to God. Our lives must be changed. Our hearts must be changed. There must be a reflection of God's grace to us towards others. And there's nothing too big or too small that we can't do through Christ. Maybe spend time with a neighbor who's lonely. Maybe teach kids to read, like in WizKids. Maybe weed somebody's yard, paint a room at someone's house or at the church, garden with an intention to give the food away to somebody who needs it. 
Maybe go to the Philippines or on a mission trip. Maybe something so big that I can't even imagine it as I stand up here. But God can. Big or small, it's the same in God's eyes. It's living our faith through our actions. And finally, the last part, the authority of Jesus. This message, this Sermon on the Mount, is directly from the mouth of God. And for us, as we read the Bible, that seems like a no-brainer. Of course it is. But to these people, when they first heard that message, what a surprise it must have been for them to hear this authority. The teachers and the scribes that they were used to spoke from other authorities. They'd quote other authorities. Jesus needed no teacher to add to his authority. Jesus spoke as the Son of God. So Jesus tells us to hear and to do. And there's one word that embodies hearing and doing, and that's obedience. When my dad used to tell me to do something, I would hear, and if I didn't want to get in trouble, I would do. And in the same way, when God tells us through his word how he wants us to live, we should hear but then we also should do. You know, Brady will be up here next week on the stage, and I can't wait to hear his message. But if all I do is hear, I'm not accomplishing anything. Brady could come in and preach the truth like it's not been preached since Jesus spoke it himself, and if I don't do anything with the message that I hear, it's worth nothing. I can believe all I want, but God's kingdom requires my action. I am saved by grace, and there is no doubt about that, and what a blessing that is. But for FCC to be vibrant, for us to meet Jesus at the judgment individually and not have him send us away, saying, have renew us, we must get in the wheelbarrow. We must do. Brady can give us a message. Brady can excite us, but if we then don't do what we learn from this book, we haven't been obedient to God. But when we are obedient to God's words and his commands, when we do meet Jesus as the judgment, what a joy it will be to be greeted by name, to be given a smile, to be given a hug, and to be told, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father God, we are so blessed to have your word given to us that we might hear that we might learn, but Lord, make us doers of your word. Make us salty and light. Make us stand out because of the grace you've given to us. May we serve this community in need so that they will know your grace. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
Cross at the cross, where I first saw the light. 